You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. As we turn to, to Mark chapter 3 today, um, I, I couldn't help but think our, our passage is uh, one of many different contrasts, and it kind of shows the opinion uh, of different people concerning Jesus. And I, I, I couldn't help but think about there are so many topics that, uh, you know, that you can bring up this topic that almost everyone has an opinion on, right? Um, you know, there, there's the old adage that everyone, uh, opinions are like noses, you know, everyone uh, has one, and uh, some of them um, uh, maybe are uh, <clears throat> bigger than others and smell worse than others, but um, <clears throat> we all have opinions on different subjects, like the best TV show of all time and why it's Saved by the Bell, like, right? Like, we all know uh, there are some topics that we, we talk about that everybody's got an opinion on. One that we recently were talking about is Daylight Savings Time, Right. Everybody's got an opinion on daylight saving time. And judging by many of you, the thumbs down and the, uh, the glazed look uh, and the extra coffee, you know, it, uh, it takes an effect on you. Um, our kids didn't get the memo uh, that they could sleep in longer. They just got the memo that they can get up earlier. Uh, everyone's got an opinion about the roads in Michigan, right, um, and why they aren't fixed. Uh, everyone's got an opinion on the weather, like why it can be 70 degrees two days ago and then it snowed yesterday and today. Like uh, we all have an opinion uh, on, on various subjects. We, we, we all have an opinion on why we drive on parkways and park in driveways, um, I'm just kidding. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, though, but it's a pretty interesting uh, thought. Um, I'll let you chew on that uh, a little bit more. Uh, but uh, there are topics that, that you can throw out and everyone has a to- an opinion on. And, and today's topic is no different. And that topic is Jesus. Right. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Maybe they're drawn to him. Maybe they are turned off by him or better or more likely by his followers. Maybe they're intrigued. Maybe they're indifferent, but everybody has an opinion about Jesus. And in our passage today, we're going to see how a lot of different groups respond to Jesus, how the crowds respond to Jesus. We're going to see how Jesus' own family responds to Jesus. We're going to be introduced to some scribes that come down from Jerusalem that are similar to the Pharisees that we've already seen in chapter 2, how they respond to Jesus. We're going to see how Jesus' own disciples, the 12 that he calls to himself to be apostles, respond to Jesus. And as we consider these contrasts, my question that I want to put before you today as we look at how other people respond to Jesus is for you to simply to consider how are you responding to Jesus. As we look at this passage, we think about how others do. I don't want us to keep it at arm length's distance, but I want us to ask ourselves, how do we respond to him? Maybe even as a committed follower of Jesus, how are you responding to him in your everyday life? Maybe as someone who's interested in considering Christianity, what is your attitude and response to Jesus. Mark chapter 3 verse 7 through 12 uh, introduces us to this first group, but I want us to see in looking at these three different groups or these actually four different groups that are mentioned in this passage, I want us to see three different contrasts. Uh, we, we know that the, the passage preceding this that we've looked at over the last few weeks, going all the way back to chapter 2, Uh, down through chapter 3, verse 6, there's a series of different conflicts that Jesus has with the Pharisees. 
uh, the religious leaders of the day in uh, Israel. And these religious leaders constantly clashed with Jesus over uh, understanding who Jesus was and why he had come and how they didn't quite, how Jesus didn't quite fit their picture of what the Messiah was going to be like. But here we're introduced in chapter 7 to the crowd and we see this contrast between the opposition of the Pharisees and the intrigue of the crowd. And in verse 6 of, the, uh, of chapter 3, it ends that passage by saying the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against Jesus how they might kill him. And verse 7 begins how there is a large crowd. And three times it mentions this large crowd. A large crowd from Galilee, which was the region that Jesus had been in. But word about Jesus had spread. And now a large crowd from Judea, the surrounding area, along with uh, all these other places, Tyre and Sidon, beyond the Jordan, a large crowd comes to Jesus. The implication is that people are eager to be near Jesus and to learn from Jesus and to see what Jesus is doing. No doubt they had heard about his teaching, but perhaps even more so, word had spread about how Jesus was healing the sick and casting out demons, and the crowds come. So we see the contrast between the Pharisees retreating and plotting to kill Jesus and the crowds rushing towards Jesus, clamoring to hear and to be healed by him. You could say the Pharisees were enraged, but the crowd was intrigued. The crowd comes because they want to be near Jesus and they want to see what Jesus is doing. Now, the crowd didn't fully understand Jesus. In, in many ways, they share that in common with the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't fully understand Jesus either. Even though they, they knew what Jesus was saying, they knew the Scriptures to which He pointed to, they, they couldn't quite understand how He was the promised Messiah. The crowds have heard this word that He's the promised Messiah, that God has come, but how could it be? What does it mean? How should I respond? And so while the crowd doesn't quite understand yet, they had this essential quality that I think is important that was missing from the Pharisees. They had an openness to Jesus. They had an openness to Him. They didn't, they didn't quite understand everything, but they were open to Jesus. The difference between the Pharisees and the crowds is the difference between hardness towards Jesus and openness to Jesus. We're told as these crowds gathered around, Jesus was teaching. He got in a boat uh, and uh, pushed out a little bit from the, the area so that he could teach, but he inevitably also drew near and he was healing many. All who had diseases were pressing towards him to touch him. We see Jesus continuing to do uh, the work that He had been doing throughout His ministry thus far, healing the sick, casting out demons. But I, I want you to notice uh, in verse 11, there's a, there's a unique emphasis. I have been pointing to the contrast between the Pharisees and the crowd, but I, wanna, I want you to, to note the demons and how they respond to Jesus here. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't so much focus uh, on Jesus casting out the demons, if you notice in verse um, in verse 11, it says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known, it says in verse 12. See, the emphasis isn't on Jesus casting out the demons, but on the demons recognizing who Jesus was. It says that they saw him and they fell down before him saying, You are the Son of God. See, throughout the, the Gospel of Mark, the demons get something that the Pharisees and the crowds and even the disciples early on don't fully get. They get the true identity of Jesus. 
Uh, the Pharisees saw Jesus as a rule breaker. He broke their rules, uh, not the law, but he broke the, the Pharisaical rules of the day. And he was a charismatic leader who was drawing people away and perhaps even causing too much of a commotion, uh, so much so that the Romans would clamp down uh, and, and come after uh, the Jews at the time. There was the crowds who saw Jesus as a miracle worker and as an amazing teacher. But the demons know something about Jesus. And Jesus silences the demons, which is somewhat of an intriguing thought. We've looked at this throughout the the Gospel of Mark because it's already occurred a few times. He does so not because the demons are uh, concluding the wrong thing, but because their timing is wrong. The time has not come for Jesus to fully be revealed as the Son of God. I, I want you to see this in the Gospel of Mark. There are a number of references to who Jesus is as the Son of God. Starting at the very beginning in Mark chapter 1, uh, you'll see uh, these references to Jesus as the Son of God. In Mark 1.1, it says, the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, and after this introduction, from this point on, only God the Father and the demons declare Jesus to be the Son of God. It's somewhat fascinating. At Jesus' uh, baptism, we see the declaration that He's the Son of God. At the transfiguration, in Mark chapter 9, we hear the voice of the Father that says He is the Son of God. And then repeatedly, starting in Mark 1.24, uh, throughout the next few chapters, we see it is the demons who declare that Jesus is the Son of God. We saw it in Mark 1.24, Mark 1.34, now here in Mark 3.11. We'll see it again in Mark chapter 5. Jesus himself will declare it uh, before Pontius Pilate in Mark chapter 14, or before the high priest, excuse me, in Mark chapter 14. And then it's not until the end of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15, verse 39, that it is on the lips of another human being that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's the Roman centurion who stands at the foot of the cross and looks upon Jesus as he breathes his last and is crucified as our substitute, as our sacrifice for our sin. See, this, this running theme of Jesus as the Son of God and the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark and the confession of the Roman centurion really reminds us that the time won't come for us to fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God until we get to the cross. It's there on the cross that we understand who Jesus is and why He has come. Jesus didn't come to start a parochial squabble with the Pharisees uh, in Galilee. Jesus didn't come to gather a large gathering, a large crowd in the, the countryside of Judea. The Son of God left the throne of God to take on human flesh to come and be the Savior for sinners. That's why Jesus has come. And we understand who He is as the Messiah and as the Son of God when we look at the cross. When Jesus came, He did not come to, uh, uh, to, to just kind of start a little group there outside of Jerusalem in Galilee. He came to wage a cosmic battle against sin, against Satan, and against death. And we see here when the demons respond to Jesus, we're reminded that when Jesus showed up, the demons cried out. When, when Jesus showed up, there was forgiveness of sin. When, when Jesus showed up, the, the wrong was made right, the broken was healed, and ultimately we would see that death would be defeated. When Jesus showed up, He brought the kingdom of God. And we see what is to come for us in the future when Jesus returns. And so Jesus showing up and the demons crying out that He is the Son of God is just building this anticipation for what's to come and reminding us 
that if we're to understand who Jesus is, if we're to understand who the Son of God is, we must look to the cross of Christ. That's where we see the revelation of who Jesus is and why He's come. Now, I want to be fair to the crowd. The crowd doesn't fully get this yet. And I imagine if we were there in the crowd, we wouldn't fully get it either. But I want to encourage us today, we're, we're not in the crowd. We're here in Theater 9, Cinemark, uh, soon to be uh, filled with people watching Black Panther. Um, it's going to be great. I wish we had a deal where you could stay and you know, get a discounted rate with some popcorn. But, um, <clears throat> but we're here today, and I don't want you to miss the point, right? They didn't fully get it. And sometimes it can be hard for us to fully get it. But don't miss Jesus pointing us here to the cross where we, we can truly see and understand why He's come. You may be angry at Jesus like the Pharisees. You may be intrigued by Jesus like the crowds. But the Pharisees and the crowds need the same thing just like we need the same thing today and that's the cross to help us understand our need and God's provision for us. Think about it. It was the cross that opened the eyes of an intrigued centurion as he stood beneath the cross. It was the cross and ultimately the resurrection that would capture the angry spirit of a young Pharisee that went by the name Saul in Acts chapter 9. Whether we're opposed to Jesus like the Pharisees or intrigued by Jesus like the crowds, we need to look to the cross and see Jesus. And as we look to the cross and see Jesus, my prayer is that we would move from being intrigued by coming to believe. Because that's what Jesus invites us to. To see our need and to trust in His provision. But the time wasn't now, Jesus makes clear in verse 12. And instead we go on to verse 13 and we see a second contrast. And that contrast is between the excitement of the crowd and the commitment of the disciples. There's now a shift in location. Jesus had been teaching near the Sea of Galilee. Now He's gone up to the mountains, uh, presumably surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and He summons those He wanted, and they came to Him. And so uh, we see here Mark calls, uh, he tells us that Jesus now calls the, and appoints the twelve. Most likely, the Gospel of Luke makes this clear. There was a larger group of disciples who were following Jesus. Uh, that were with Jesus. And from among that larger group, Jesus calls the twelve uh, to be his apostles. They were not the only disciples, but they are appointed uniquely as disciples, as apostles, as sent ones, as messengers of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They ultimately would be the authoritative eyewitness messengers of the resurrection. And Jesus here is setting them apart. And the twelve Apostles, um, uh, later we see in the Gospel of Matthew, are symbolic, in many ways, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is, is kind of reconstituting the people of God uh, in, the, in the 12 apostles. And we see we have the fulfillment of the, of the promises of God in the Old Testament, and He's bringing about a new covenant people. But He's also doing a second thing. We're seeing the, all of this going on, this fulfillment of these promises and how uh, Jesus is calling uh, these disciples uh, to, to be His authoritative eyewitness messengers. But we're seeing a second point that I think is, uh, is important for us to understand, and that's that Jesus is here indicating that His mission, that His gospel message will be carried out to the nations through His disciples. 
Jesus has come uniquely as the Messiah, the Son of God, to die for our sins, to rise from the dead, uh, to proclaim the gospel. That's why he came. We saw in Mark chapter 1 that uh, it says in verse 38 that I must go and preach the good news of the kingdom for this is why I've come. But his coming and initial announcement of the good news of the kingdom was not the end of the story. It was the beginning of the mission of the church and the mission of the church is carried out by his disciples bearing witness to Jesus. As I mentioned, the the apostles play a special role in this mission. The apostles are uniquely situated as eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. It is upon their testimony that we have the New Testament. It is upon their testimony that the initial preaching of the gospel and establishment of the church uh, took place. We we see that they were, it says in uh, verse uh, verse 14, He appointed the twelve, He named them apostles, and it says this, threefold, Uh, job title that they had to be with him to preach he sent them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons he appointed the 12 and he goes through and he lists the names and today we're not going to go into the list of names however uh, we do just need to acknowledge uh, the amazingness um, of James and John uh, the sons of Zebedee being given the name sons of thunder Uh, Long before WCW or WWF existed, they had the best tag team name that could have ever been given uh, to uh, these two disciples, the Sons of Thunder. And and so uh, there was a part of me, uh, one of my sons' name is John, uh, that we found out we were having a second son. I kind of wanted to go James, you know, but we went, we went Graham instead. Uh, but I thought it would have been amazing to have the Sons of Thunder. Um, and so uh, that's totally for free and a side note to, to everything else that's going on uh, here. Uh, but the, the apostles play this unique role in God's mission by being the authoritative eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. But their role that it spells out to be with Jesus, to preach and to cast out demons in many ways, is a reminder to us of the foundational mission of every disciple, of every follower of Jesus. The apostles have a unique role, but their unique role is a model to understand our role. See, Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, to every believer the task of being a witness to Jesus' death and resurrection, to, to, to bearing witness, to, to telling the good news of what Jesus has done for us is the mission of every believer. And in the apostles, we see our task, how we are entrusted with this message. We are not eyewitnesses, but based upon the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, we bear witness to the good news of God's grace in our lives and through Jesus Christ, which is recorded in the Scriptures. The, the foundation of our testimony is not what we think about God. Uh, it is what He has revealed about Himself. And then uh, as we look at what He has revealed, we can bear witness, just as we heard this morning, of what God has done in our life. And listen to me. You may feel like, Michael, I can't answer every question about the Bible. I don't know how to be a witness to Jesus. I don't know how to tell other people about Jesus. There's a lot of things that I don't know, answers I don't know about questions that I have about the Bible. And one of the most freeing things you can do to somebody who has a question is say, I don't know. And then when you say, I don't know, but say, hey, let's look at it together. Maybe we can figure out an answer. But here's one thing that nobody can take from you. Nobody can take from you the testimony of what God has done in your life. So don't be afraid to bear witness to what the Bible says about Jesus. And don't be afraid to bear witness to what Jesus has done in your life. We are witnesses to Jesus and the mission that we have 
that's foundational to our understanding of who we are as a church is spelled out here. Be with Jesus, tell others about Jesus, and help people in need by showing them the love of Jesus. This is where we get our mission to make disciples who delight in to be with Jesus, declare, tell others about Jesus, and display to help others in need by showing them the love of Jesus. This is what we're called to as His followers. This is the mission. The twelve have a unique role in that mission, but in doing so, they point us to the fact that every follower of Jesus shares in the mission of Jesus. The difference between the excitement of the crowd and the commitment of the disciples is the difference between seeing what Jesus is all about and sharing in Jesus' mission. Oh, it's, it's amazing to look in to what Jesus is about. And I want to encourage you, this is a church where you can ask questions, where you can look in to what Jesus is all about. But our invitation, as you look into what Jesus is all about, is to then share in the mission that He's all about and that He came to invite us into. So, contrast two, we see the excitement of the crowds and the commitment of the disciples. And then the final contrast that we see here is in, in verses 20 through 35 is the rejection of Jesus' family and the scribes and the reception of Jesus' true family. You see, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're told that people would hear Jesus' teaching and they would, they would be amazed at Jesus. They would say, wow, what new teaching is this that He teaches with authority? That, that people would, would see Jesus' miracles and they would conclude, as it says in chapter 2, verse 12, we've never seen anything like this. I love later in the Gospels, it says after Jesus had healed and taught, they said that He does everything well. What a conclusion when we look at Jesus. It was amazing to, to see what Jesus did. And we see by the response of the crowds that came out to follow Him, everyone was amazed by Jesus. And yet here we see two negative responses. One from Jesus' own family. It speaks of His mother and His brothers and sisters. And then uh, of these scribes that come down from Jerusalem. These were the, these were the professionals. You know, the, the professional teachers from Jerusalem that get sent in uh, to look into what Jesus is doing. His family concludes that he's lost his mind. And if you've ever had any family members like that, uh, that, that's your conclusion right now. I think they've lost their mind. The, the, the scribes from Jerusalem go one step even further, or maybe one leap even further, and they say he's of the devil. The, the family of Jesus... Uh, we're going to see the, the kind of interaction with the family begins in verse 20 and kind of pushes pause in verse 21, and then it picks it back up in verse 31 and inserted in is this interaction with the scribes from Jerusalem. But it's really talking about the same topic, how they are responding to Jesus. So we'll come back to Jesus' family in a minute. But in verses 23 through 30, there's kind of an escalation of the uh, opposition that we saw earlier back in chapter 2. And that escalation, it says, is that the scribes from Jerusalem come down. And now, Jesus is all the way north up in Capernaum in the Galilee area. So it's a good hike from Jerusalem. So what we know is that most likely things have escalated. The Pharisees have taken word back to Jerusalem. And those in Jerusalem, the powers that be, are like, let's get some professionals up here to see what's going on with this guy named Jesus. So there's kind of an escalation of what's happening here. And the, the scribes from Jerusalem were, were experts. They, they knew the law. They knew the, the Old Testament Scriptures. They would be the authoritative uh, ones to announce whether or not something is of God or not of God. They would be the one that would settle a dispute around the law and what uh, Jesus was doing. 
And so they come up and they come up not with a question for Jesus like the Pharisees. They come up with an accusation about Jesus and they say all that he is doing, he is doing by the he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. He's casting out demons by Beelzebul, which is a a name that's kind of unique and, and doesn't occur elsewhere, but most likely is a reference to either the prince demon or or even just kind of a a way of referring to Satan himself. That's ultimately how Jesus says it and how Jesus takes what they say. He says, "How can Satan drive out Satan?" They're looking at Jesus casting out demons, and they conclude that Jesus must be of Satan himself. All the crowds looked at it and were amazed. The Pharisees looked at it and questioned it. And these scribes from Jerusalem come out and say, what's taking place here isn't of God, but it's of Satan. It's a pretty strong escalating conclusion concerning Jesus. And it's not a, it's not a small or indifferent matter of, of what they accuse Jesus of. They don't accuse Him of being mistaken. They don't accuse Him of being confused. They accuse Him of being evil. And in response, Jesus tells a story. And Jesus basically says, well, if I'm casting out Satan, why would Satan cast out himself? A house divided cannot stand. A kingdom divided cannot stand. He says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. It's almost like Jesus is trying to share the good news. We see uh, in, uh, in 1 John and Hebrews, you know, it says uh, in both of those places, Hebrews tap, chapter 2, 1 John chapter 3, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He says, but we do know this, that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. See, Jesus is drawing this, using this parable, this statement to, to kind of make a point. And He's saying that if I'm of Satan, how could Satan be casting out himself? Instead, if anyone comes and is going to bind Satan and finish Satan and tie up Satan, he must be stronger than Satan. And just like we've seen throughout of Jesus' authority and teaching and His authority over demons, Jesus is here once more reiterating that He has authority over Satan. He is the strong man that can bind up Satan and plunder His house. Plunder His house of the accusations of our sin and the shame and guilt of our sin. He is the one who has the power over the evil one and can cast out demons and, and free those who have been bound in spiritual bondage to Satan. And so Jesus here makes this strong statement concerning His own authority and then He makes a strong statement concerning these scribes from Jerusalem. He says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven of all sins in whatever blasphemies they utter. Listen to what He says. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit has never... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So at this point, I'm going to ask Pastor Chris to come up and explain the unforgivable sin, and I'm going to take a seat. Um, now, what is the unforgivable sin, right? Have you heard that? The unpardonable sin? Can you, can I commit the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin? Is there sin that we cannot be forgiven of? Well, Jesus here makes a really strong statement. But I want us to understand what, what He's saying here. The unforgivable sin is not saying negative things about Jesus. 
Jesus' own family said he was out of his mind. Jesus' own disciples said, we're not right so sure about all of this, Jesus. Paul himself denies who Jesus claims to be. The unforgivable sin isn't saying negative things about Jesus, nor is it doubting or asking questions about Jesus. All throughout, the Pharisees themselves leading up to this point have been asking questions incessantly about Jesus. Jesus' own disciples on the way continually ask questions about Jesus even when Jesus has already explained things to them. Right? Like, so this isn't, this isn't saying bad things about Jesus. This isn't saying doubting or questioning Jesus. The unforgivable sin is looking at the work of God in Jesus by the Spirit and concluding that the work of God in Jesus by the Spirit is of the devil. It's calling the work of God the work of Satan. It's not agnosticism, it's not ignorance, but instead what the unforgivable sin is that Jesus mentions here is the willful, hard-hearted, persistent rejection of Jesus by dismissing Him as doing the work of the devil. So what we see here is, is ultimately, I think, a sin, if it could be committed today, would have to be committed by someone with knowledge like the scribes, with persistent rejection and with the the knowledge of what Jesus did and concluding that Jesus Himself is of Satan. But I think the, the truth is most likely that this unforgivable sin is unique to the ministry of Jesus on earth as people literally saw the miracles that He did, the things that He taught, and walked away and didn't just say, ah, I'm not so sure about Him. Lots of people walked away from Jesus and said, ah, I'm not so sure about Him. Lots of people, like the thief on the cross, would revile and mock Jesus. Lots of people would make fun of and revile and mock Christians in the name of Jesus. The earliest depictions that we have in Rome is uh, of Alexandrus, uh, this drawing of a cross with uh, the body of a man on the cross and the head of a donkey, and it says, Alexander worships his God. People have been mocking Jesus and saying negative things about Jesus and questioning Jesus since the beginning. But the unforgivable sin is the hard-hearted, willful, persistent rejection of Jesus by claiming that what He is doing is actually of the devil. It's a strong statement. He's saying the scribes here are crossing the point of no return upon which they fully and wholly reject Jesus. Now, I want to I draw out some application for us as it relates to sin. Understanding sin, forgiveness, and judgment here. The first thing I want you to, to see as we look at what Jesus says here is that sin is serious. And I say, well, yeah, I see you escalated things quite uh, significantly there, Michael. I pray my seriousness matches the seriousness with which God's Word talks about it. Sin is serious. Sin is what puts Jesus on the cross. Sin is evidence of our broken relationship with God, our broken relationship with one another, and our broken relationship with ourselves. And apart from God acting and bringing about redemption and forgiveness, we would be dead in our sins and our trespasses, Paul says in Romans. Sin is serious. And we also see here, I think while the unforgivable sin, in my estimation, is unique to the time upon which Jesus' ministry took place on earth. 
it is true that today, in a way, there is one unforgivable sin that we can commit. And that is persisting in unbelief unto death. If we persist in unbelief, rejecting Jesus' offer of salvation unto our death, we will experience God's eternal judgment. The scriptures teach. How we respond to Jesus determines our eternal destiny. And that weighty truth comes alongside this other freeing truth. And it says it right there in verse 28, that there is forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins is in Jesus. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven of all sins. Whatever blasphemies they utter, they will be forgiven of all sins. The truth that we see about Jesus in our passage is that He's stronger than Satan. He's stronger than the guilt of your sin, than the shame of your sin, than the accusation of your sin. If anybody tells you Jesus is all about love and not about sin, I can't help but point here to remind you that Jesus' love is demonstrated for us in that while we were still sinners, Romans 5.8 says, Christ died for us. God's love is demonstrated in that the, the one unique Son of God so loved the world that, that God loved us by giving His Son so that we wouldn't perish in our sins, but by believing in Him would have eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is the good news of the Gospel and that there is forgiveness of sins. There is one who is stronger than sin, shame, and guilt. The addictions that bind. The guilt that gnaws away at us, the shame that overwhelms us, the bondage of sin that seems like we can't break free from. There's one who's greater than all those things. And His name is Jesus. There's a strong man who enters into the house of Satan and binds him up. There's a strong man who enters into the house of sin and shame and guilt and binds it up and offers forgiveness of sins. Not for those who work hard to get it, but for those who would be willing to receive what Christ has done for us. So as long as you have breath, you can repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. And the reason that's true is because consider asking yourself these two questions. Did Jesus die on the cross for my sins and rise from the dead? The answer according to the Scriptures is yes. Do you have consciousness enough to confess your sin and place your trust in Jesus? If you're here today, unless you brought an unconscious friend that I don't know about, the answer to that question is yes. As long as it is today, we can call on Jesus and trust in Him. That may be an encouragement for you. That today, God may be drawing you to Himself. That may be an encouragement for you to hear about someone you know. Maybe a, a rebuke to you, perhaps, for somebody you've written off who you think is too far gone. No one's too far gone from the reach of Jesus. The beams of the cross stretch out far and wide to call sinners to repentance and to faith in Christ. That's the good news, that there's forgiveness of sin. 
Verse 30 picks back up with Jesus' family. It says, The crowd told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside. And it says Mary and her four other sons, uh, we know from Luke, who are Jacob, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. They come to Jesus, um, to Jesus' home where he's staying, and, uh, and somebody says, Hey, Jesus, your family's here. And here we have the, this contrast pressed in, the rejection of Jesus uh, Jesus' family and the scribes and the reception of Jesus by his true family. The, the difference here between Jesus' family and his true family, if you will, which he talks about here in a minute, is the difference between refusing to see who Jesus, uh, to, refusing to see Jesus for who he is and receiving Jesus for who he is. It says that to receive Jesus is to believe and do the will of God. It says that the crowd told him, verse 32, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking at those that were sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here are my sisters. Here are those who belong to my family, that those who do the will of God are my brother, my sister, and my mother. Jesus is showing what it means to belong to the family of God is doing the will of God. Now, that, that's an interesting statement that we have to understand in light of the Jesus' Jesus's proclamation throughout concerning repentance and faith. To do the will of God, it does not mean that we do enough for God that He lets us in to His family. Instead, to do the will of God is to receive Him for who He is so that we walk in accordance with His will. You can try to do the will of God apart from believing in God, but you will end up frustrated and thwarted. To do the will of God is to believe in the one that God has sent, in Jesus, the Son of God. And believing in His name, you might walk in obedience to Him. In fact, 1 John says it this way, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be when He has appeared, we do not yet know. But we know this, that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. I think what Jesus is saying here is that those who receive Jesus become children of God. And those who are children of God do the will of God. That's what it means to be in God's family. We come into God's family by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And entering into that family... We bear the family resemblance, seeking to do the will of the one who saved us and who came for us. And so as we look at these contrasts, the contrast between the opposition of the Pharisees and the uh, intrigue of the crowd and the excitement of the crowd and the commitment of the disciples and the, um, <clears throat> and the rejection of Jesus' family and the scribes with the reception of Jesus' true family. We consider what the Gospel of Mark has to say to us today. I begin where we started. I end where we began. How are you responding to Jesus today in your own life? Maybe discouraged. Maybe, maybe you're open and seeking like the crowd. Maybe a little frustrated and closed off. Some circumstances that have gone on in your life or maybe reach far back into the past. Things unresolved, questions unanswered. Maybe there's some sense in which you're feeling called to commit yourself to Christ to receive Him as Savior. 
Maybe as a believer, you're, you've, you've experienced that temptation uh, to avoid Christ because of sin. You find yourself running from Him, not wanting to deal with some of the things that are going on in your heart and in your life. Maybe today you find yourself longing and wanting to trust more and worship more Jesus because of who He is. How are you responding to Him? I'm going to ask Victor and Amber to come. And as we close in worship, in many ways, as we close in worship, we're going to close with a song that asks us to consider how are we responding to Jesus? Do we consider Jesus worthy? Do we consider ourselves in need of Him and and Him sufficient for us? And if we do, then then how can we not respond in worship? And here's what I want you to understand. When you worship Jesus... It doesn't mean that you dismiss all the troubles and all the struggles. It doesn't mean that you check your brain at the door or that you avoid or uh, ignore all the hard stuff in your life. When you worship Jesus, what you're declaring is you're saying that He sits above it all. He's worthy. He's on the throne. I'm submitting myself to Him. I say this often in our pastoral prayer. When we come to Jesus, we don't leave our problems at the door. We bring Him to the feet of Jesus. And however you might be struggling or, or, or enjoying your response to Jesus today as we worship, let your worship be coming to Him, having an openness, and yet not just an openness, but a reception and even a commitment to Jesus to be His disciples and to join Him in His mission, to receive what He's done for us, that we might be children of God and being children of God, that we might do the will of God. Let's pray.